So we are on the, uh, the eve of the eve, the eve of the eve of, um, of Sukkot. So I thought, well, should we talk about Sukkot? Should I go back to Acts? What should we do? So I thought we would talk a little bit about uh, some of the themes of Sukkot and stay sort of in the holiday mood, you know, uh, uh, because it really is, uh, you know, Sukkot uh, is called, in Hebrew, it has like a nickname, Zman Simchatenu, which means the time of our rejoicing. Uh, and so isn't that quite a juxtaposition from uh, everything uh, that has uh, come before it? You know, the time of our rejoicing, wait, we've been you know, we've been fasting, we've been confessing sins, we, you know, uh, we have been uh, challenged uh, to uh, look introspectively into our hearts and, you know, in, into our lives, and now it's a time of our rejoicing. Uh, one of the things that we learn, and, and I've said this, uh, kind of weaving it through the whole uh, High Holy Days time, is that going back to the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, remember the very first uh, thing we talked about on Erev Rosh Hashanah was the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah. Is it a happy holiday or is it a sad holiday? Right? Uh, and, uh, and that sort of is a kind of has resonated uh, throughout uh, because on one hand we're confessing, we're repenting, but on the other hand, we're rejoicing. We rejoice because God receives us, because we have the assurance of his loving kindness. And, and, and so we don't approach him as some austere uh, king that we've been fortunate to get some kind of uh, audience with, you know, like in the book of Esther. You know how Esther was afraid, right? Uh, she, she's afraid to go to the king because if he doesn't hold out the scepter, it's, you know, it's the end of her. Uh, that isn't it marvelous? We do not approach God that way. So, so on one hand, thinking about ourselves, it's oh, I haven't measured up, I've sinned, and uh, and uh, you know, as we say in the Brit Hadashah in the New Covenant, we've fallen short of the glory of God, right? But then on the other hand, when we think about God, He receives us, Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then we repeat, it's very interesting that the ancient rabbis had this in their minds because it also is very clear in the, the New Covenant that just as we're saying, Lord, receive us, Lord, save us, we repeat over and over again, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, uh, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives. Uh, and so we sort of travel with both truths understanding who we are and understanding who God is. Uh, and so uh, on, Sukh on Sukkot, it truly is this time that we call the, the time of our rejoicing. Now we read about it, and by the way, you'll, you're going to receive another one of those uh, introduction to uh, little pieces in an email. You'll probably get it on Monday at this point, I, I, uh, where uh, I really lay out uh, all the verses and everything about uh, the, the holiday. But uh, there is a real theme of rejoicing. If you, if you look in uh, Leviticus uh, chapter uh, 23, where it talks about uh, Sukkot in the Bible, we read uh, here in verse 34. 
Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days uh, to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do uh, no uh, laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to pre present offering by fires uh, uh, to the Lord, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and libations, each man's matter in his own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and besides all your uh, votive and free will offerings, which are given uh, uh, to the Lord. So uh, uh, it's kind of interesting when you read this, when you read it carefully. In a way, the, uh, that's the end of the chapter, even though there's more verses in the chapter. In a way, that's the end of the chapter. These are the offerings. These are the things you're supposed to do, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and what it tells us really is, and uh, if we were to go through all the verses in the Bible about this holiday, we would see that it's an agricultural holiday. It is the third of the three uh, festivals of ingathering uh, where people bring in uh, their, uh, uh, their harvest. Uh, and the fall is uh, mostly a fruit, uh, fruit harvest. Uh, and uh, what we read here is a uh, basically that's what you have. And, and then it ends. It says, these are the appointed times of the Lord. But then, for some reason, in verse 39 to 44, it repeats this holiday, but it says something different about it. Like it adds something more to it, other than just the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering. So we read here. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate a feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. See, it's repeating it. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a Feast to the Lord for seven days of the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So it's kind of interesting here that you have like this little extra thing uh, about uh, Sukkot. And uh, just a couple of observations. The passage tells us to celebrate. It says rejoice, celebrate, celebrate, rejoice, rejoice, celebrate. It repeats the word, over simcha, the, the word over and over again, uh, to celebrate it. So clearly uh, we get the vibe, right? It's a happy holiday. This is... Uh, this is a joyful time. It is a time when, when we gather in crops, it says it, when we gather in the crops, we rejoice. It also says that we're supposed to build a sukkah, supposed to build a sukkah, 
Okay? And uh, as you may know, that uh, the sages of old uh, had, a, uh, had a dispute about what you do with the foliage of the leafy trees and willows of the brook, right? Do you um, use that to make the sukkah, or do you hold it in your hand when you worship? Well, we know who won out uh, because we hold it in our hand. Right, the lulav and the etrog will be doing that. We're all going to have an opportunity tomorrow night and on Monday morning uh, to come up and and hold the the lulav uh, and the etrog. The etrog is a citron, citron, sort of like a mutant lemon, right? Okay, uh, and you hold that in one hand. You hold the palm branch and the leafy trees, the, the the myrtle and the willow in the other hand, and we shake it in all the different directions, uh, like worshiping the Lord, and you know and has a variety of different meanings that, that you know that we'll talk about. The the other group of people felt that it should be uh, the 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 roof, frankly, uh, of the of the sukkah. I, I, but uh, anyway, uh, so that that's how we understand it, and we build a sukkah. That's what we have out here. That's what we got going out there, uh, and uh, it is um, uh, big enough that we can uh, all fit in there. Uh, but you wouldn't want to live in it. You, you know, uh, the central heating just doesn't cut it uh, there and a variety of other other things. Uh, and uh, but we live in it. It says live in it for seven days. So uh, uh, sometimes people live in the sukkah in, in ancient times. They, they lived in it uh, today in Israel. If you go to Israel on Sukkot, uh, oftentimes the sukkah is on a roof. It's built on a roof uh, above a house kind of interesting, and a lot of joyful celebrations uh, taking place, okay? Uh, and then uh, notice it tells us what we're supposed to remember, and it only says it here. <laughs> it's very interesting. We're supposed to remember uh, that uh, God had the sons of Israel live in booths when he brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh, you know, it's also kind of interesting. It never says anywhere else that he had them live in booths. <laughs> Uh, while they were traveling in the wilderness. Now, they probably did, uh, but it's just one of those interesting things about the Word of God. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and so we remember God's presence, God being with the people, right? And we remember that uh, God sustained them in the wilderness, that God took care of, of the people uh, in, in the wilderness, Right? Uh, and that it was a very tenuous uh, period of time. That's why there's a tradition of reading Ecclesiastes on Sukkot. Uh, uh, why? Because it speaks of a, you know, of a, tenu a tenuous world, uh, yet God's uh, invisible hand oversees it all. Uh, yet, uh, we, you know, we live in, in an uncertain uh, time. Uh, and that's kind of what we're supposed to remember, that even in the midst of the whirlwind of Weird stuff happening everywhere. Uh, God remains faithful. And, and it reminds us that we're, we're still in exile and we're traveling in the wilderness and, and so on. Yet when we read other passages in the Bible about Sukkot, it's just all about rejoicing. Rejoicing and in a sense, there is a, a, a sense of, uh, of dedication. Uh, you know, we read uh, regarding um, uh, the dedication of the temple. Uh, in 1 Kings 8 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that it was on Sukkot, uh, that, the, that the first temple and the second temple 
were uh, dedicated uh, on uh, this uh, holiday. You read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says in the ninth verse, On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days uh, and the feast uh, of seven days. Uh, And you read it again in the next verse. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to all the people Israel. And so just as God dwelt with the people as they were traveling uh, in the wilderness uh, at the dedication of the temple, there's a reminder God still dwells with us. He dwells with us at the temple. He tabernacles with us. You know, he dwells uh, uh, with us. That's what booths means uh, uh, in, um, you know, in, uh, in Greek. Uh, and in uh, Hebrew, it's simply a shelter, a shelter. And we read, uh, uh, you, we read that as a metaphor in a number of places, that God is the sukkah, right? The heavenly sukkah, the, the rabbis uh, used to use uh, that term, even talking about the future, when God would reign throughout all the earth. The, heaven, the, the, the whole world would live in a heavenly sukkah. Isn't that very poetic? And of course, it's no coincidence that in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, uh, we read that all the nations, you know, uh, when, the, when uh, the Messiah manifests himself as king in Jerusalem, all the nations are going to come on Sukkot uh, and they're going to worship uh, uh, the, the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. It says, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate uh, the Feast of Booths. And of course, in a, in a prophetic sense, uh, Sukkot is, you know, points to uh, the return of Messiah and uh, him dwelling with us uh, and, and protecting and, and rejoicing and uh, and, uh, you know, and that, that whole understanding. So uh, when we look at uh, Sukkot as a holiday uh, that comes after Yom Kippur, remember I said uh, during the holidays, during, uh, I think it was Yom Kippur, that today Sukkot is not considered one of the high holy days, right? It's not considered, one, it's, it's considered a minor holiday. Uh, and uh, and that, it, but it occurs, uh, you know, after Yom Kippur. However, uh, in the scriptures, it's no minor holiday. You go and you look at every place that this holiday is. It's more prevalent than any other holiday that's talked about in the Bible. We read more about the celebration of Sukkot than we do about Passover, than about than about uh, 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 any other holiday. Uh, so it was definitely a joyous time. In fact, uh, we read in uh, the book of Deuteronomy that uh, every seventh year on Sukkot, the Torah was to be read to all the people so that the king and the people would, would remember that God is their king and that they would rejoice uh, together. Uh, they weren't to uh, read the Torah every seven years on Passover or on Shavuot, uh, but, uh, or on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, uh, but on Sukkot. Sometimes it's called the Feast of the Lord in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's called the Feast of the Harvest. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Ingathering uh, or the Feast of Booths. 
Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it, it is no minor holiday. In fact, uh, when you look at all the rabbinic literature and you kind of add it all up, it's kind of like there's Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, leading up to Sukkot. Like the, that the primary holiday is Sukkot. This great day of rejoicing. Rejoicing before the king. But in order to rejoice before the king, we have to repent. And we have to be reconciled. And when we repent and we're reconciled to God, wow, we can really celebrate. Uh, and, uh, and I think certainly, I think we've recovered that to a certain degree. And that's kind of, I think, the way we, uh, we understand this holiday. So I hope that it will be a time of uh, celebration. And if it's a time of celebration, it means that our focus is not so much on ourselves, but our focus is on God and who God is and how wonderful uh, the, the Lord is. Uh, and so for that reason, I thought that we might take a look at something uh, that we haven't really looked at on these holidays, but uh, a prayer or, uh, or a series of uh, scripture verses that are very prevalent uh, on all these, on these holidays, especially uh, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Uh, and that is a group of psalms called Hallel, Hallel psalms, okay? Uh, ha, uh, uh, not say Halal, okay? I say, okay, just so you know. Uh, Hallel, Hallel means uh, praise in Hebrew, uh, and uh, although all the psalms are psalms of praise in one way or another, right, there are uh, different groups of psalms. And yes, we have a winner. Okay. All right. Okay. So anyway, I, uh, there are different groups of psalms. Uh, and it is kind of interesting to study the psalms, we might say, canonically. That means the way they're laid out. Like uh, why are certain psalms grouped together? So there's technically two groups of Hallel Psalms. One is Psalm 145 to 150, okay? You can't get more praisier, okay, than Psalm 145 to, uh, to 150. You know, you could do a lot with that word. I'm just thinking in my head, but I won't go there right now. All right, uh, Psalm 145. So what is Psalm 145? It's one of the most famous Psalms uh, in Judaism anyway. Ashrei, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and when we sing it, uh, you know, we praise God uh, for uh, many different things. And 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, uh, and we're just like off the charts of praise, right? Right. So that's one set of praise psalms that are read every single day, 365 days a year, every single day, and on leap years, 366 times a year, Okay. Uh, every single morning, Psalm 145 to 150 is read in the synagogue in the Shachrit morning service. But on holidays, uh, especially the three feasts of ingathering, I, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is read. Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And that is, in Judaism, what is generally called the Hallel. Okay? Technically, it's called the Egyptian Hallel to differentiate it. Why is it called the Egyptian Hallel? No, it wasn't written in Egypt, you know, like the Babylonian Talmud or something like that. But the focus is on the redemption, the redemption out of Egypt. Uh, but as we're going to see over the next few days, uh, that Psalms 113 through Psalm 118, in a sense, gives us a history of Israel, 
a history of God in Israel. And that is very, very, uh, uh, very, very important to understand. Not so much the history of us, but the history of God in Israel. And so when you read these Psalms, they sound different than what we read in Exodus. Like, for example, uh, in, uh, in Exodus, it says, Moses raised his arms and the waters uh, parted. It says in, in, the, in these Hallel Psalms, the sea saw it and fled. <laughs> okay? In other words, that the, the waters themselves have some kind of experience uh, with God. Uh, and, and, and part themselves, you know? Uh, so it's really talking very much about the glory of God and how humanity and, and everything that God has created uh, responds to God. Uh, and you can do nothing but rejoice and celebrate. Uh, and um, uh, usually the Hallel Psalms are part of a, a portion of the service toward the end of the service, where the Amidah is done again. I, uh, the way a, uh, just so you know, the way a, uh, a traditional uh, like Shabbat service goes in the Jewish world, it's like several services tacked on to each other, right? So you have the Shacharit, uh, which means dawn, by the way. So that'd be like the early morning service. And that's kind of like you have the, the Pesuke de Zimra, you have the praises, you have the Shema, you have more praises, you have the Amidah, you have the Torah service, uh, basically, uh, and a Jarash, uh, and, uh, and the end of the service. Okay, that's sort of what happens uh, in a Shacharit service. But on Shabbat, there's an additional service. It's called Musaf. Musaf. It means additional service. Okay, uh, and uh, it represents, it's supposed to represent offerings, do, doing offerings. And the uh, Amidah is repeated all over again, like just like it was in the earlier part, like silently and then re repetition. But on holidays, in the repetition, the second time, you have all these additional prayers that have to do with the holiday, see? And the Hallel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, is chanted at that time. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, very joyful. And oftentimes there are these sing-songy different tunes that are used uh, for it. And in the modern days, all kinds, Hatikva is sometimes used uh, for some of these psalms. Isn't that kind of interesting? Uh, and other, other very in interesting ways of presenting them uh, today. So we want to look at the beginning of Hallel in Psalm 113. Let's turn there. Psalm 113. It's a, a great uh, passage. And you know, when you read these psalms, I think you know, the goal is not always to just simply to exegete them, but to get the feeling. Because, you know, there's songs. And, and songs are supposed to give us a, a, you know, a feeling. Like when you hear a song on the radio, Right? Uh, a happy song. It might remind you of where you were at a particular time or, or just the, uh, you know, the, the words uh, remind you of, uh, of, of a happy moment in life. And so Psalm, 100, Psalm 113 is a very happy psalm. Uh, and it reminds us of the greatness of God, but it says a few other things uh, as well. 
All right, so here, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Bless, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself? to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the, in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise uh, the Lord. Actually, I'm going to read 114 too. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his kingdom, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water the flint into a fountain of water. So at the beginning, it's a very good introduction. Praise the Lord, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah, avde Adonai, hallelujah, et shame Adonai. Uh, and so you see that repeated, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord. So there's a call here, there's a command here, Right? Right? Hallelujah, Avde Adonai. Pray, oh, servants, praise the Lord. Eved. Remember, you know, it means servant, it also means slave, right? Uh, and so the question uh, then is who is this directed at? <laughs> you know, who is being spoken to? Uh, you servants of the Lord, you give praise to the Lord. So, in its context, we could say maybe it's Israel, you know, uh, O servants of the Lord. Certainly, uh, we wouldn't say, is it talking about the Egyptians? Is it talking about uh, the Mesopotamian peoples? Are we, you know, uh, we generally speaking would not refer to them as servants of the Lord or slaves of God. But Israel is always called the servant of the Lord. Israel is the servant of the Lord. We read about it all the way through the Bible. However, we know uh, from our biblical history and understanding that you have uh, the whole nation, but then you have people, you have some people that are called servants of the Lord. It's just a handful of, of people in the Bible that are, that are called servants of the Lord. Moses is called a servant of the Lord. Job is called a servant of the Lord. And, and a few other people are called servants uh, of the Lord. And then we could also say maybe in a, in a little in a little bigger group, the remnant of Israel, the people within the nation that really follow the Lord, the people that, that really uh, uh, have believed, and so on. Uh, we would say they are servants of the Lord. So I guess we could say in Psalm 113 uh, that who is to praise the Lord day and night, uh, every day? People who understand themselves to really be slaves of Messiah, servants of the Lord, People who know that he is uh, their king, 
uh, that we are to praise him at all times, day and night. And it's interesting that this text says day and night, all the time. Because there's an interesting little phrase here that's used only here and one other place in the Bible. I, I, in verse 2, uh, see what it says, I, uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay? Yehi shem Adonai mevorach. That's what that is. Now, you know, that should sound a little familiar, right? Uh, we say in, in the Kaddish, we say it. Uh, I believe we say it, or something similar to it. Uh, and, uh, and in the liturgy, uh, elsewhere we say it. But in the Bible, it's only used here in one other place. And it's in the book of Job. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so only uh, uh, the writer of Psalm 113 and Job actually say, Yehi shem Adonai mevorach. Uh, and that's uh, rather interesting. Uh, and uh, we read it in the first chapter of Job, in a very interesting uh, moment in Job's life. Okay? In Job 1, when does Job say this? Let's get there. There we go. In verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There it is. And here you see it. Uh, in Psalm uh, 113, uh, in uh, verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, that, and, and so Job, here's a person that uh, recognizes, you know, even if he slays me, I will still praise him, right? I know my Redeemer lives, in, you know, in the midst of a terrible, terrible heartache, uh, he, he is truly a servant of the Lord and demonstrates uh, Psalm 113, right? Uh, o servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the morning until night. Okay, so that in and of itself uh, is very important for us to get. So the introduction to Hallel is, you servants of the Lord, praise God. Praise his name. Never forget who he is. Praise his name no matter what. You know? Uh, and uh, truly, that should be uh, who we are. People who praise uh, the name of the Lord. Now, now in verse 4 uh, in chapter 13, he's going to give like a reason why. <laughs> okay? The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. And there's nobody like him, right? Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Okay? There's nobody like the God of Israel. Remember the uniqueness of the God of Israel, right? The God of all the nations uh, uh, is one of many uh, and is the mountains and the sea, uh, you know, and the storms and all of that. The God of Israel is understood to be the one and only creator and sustainer of the universe and that everything, everything that there is, inanimate objects as well as human beings, nations, people, lands, uh, and terrain, all uh, are created by God 
and all give thanks to him and demonstrate his glory. Now, you know what's really interesting is that when we look at the world today, very little of the creation uh, uh, seems to glorify God. I mean, there are beautiful places in this world where you can go and, you know, how can you not acknowledge God when you look at certain landscapes? You know, I've only seen pictures of most of them, you know, but beautiful places all around the world that certainly, wow, demonstrate the, the beauty of God and the glory of God. I think that in my own life, the closest I've ever come is um, Niagara Falls underneath. If you go underneath Niagara Falls and you're like, you're standing right and the, the water is coming down like, like 10 feet in front of you. And it, it's so, it's, it's this powerful thrust of, of, of water. I mean, it really speaks of the, the glory of God and really something. But I'm sure we all can think in our minds of perhaps, uh, you know, places we've been. But you know what's really interesting is that at the end, even like water pots are going to give praise to God. You know how it says that in, in Zechariah? That everything that is created will give thanks to God. Sort of like a return to uh, the way uh, that it has always supposed to have been. Uh, and so uh, God is overall, God, uh, there's no one like God who's enthroned on high. So he certainly is the, uh, you know, just uh, transcendent and all-powerful, uh, and sovereign, uh, and as we like to say in almost every Jewish blessing, king of the universe, you know, king of the world, right? Uh, and that is, that is what is being uh, uh, brought out here. But isn't it amazing and powerful what it says right after this in Psalm 113, and what we praise God for, who humbles himself. It means he makes himself low. It means make himself lowly. It's what what the word means. To behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He not only uh, lowers himself to to see it, you know, using uh, the the metaphor of of something that's like far away and high up, you you know, uh, like when you're in a plane, right? At the beginning, you're, you're going up, uh, and after a while, uh, if, it's, if there's no clouds, you might see like little squares of land, <laughs> you know, or, or something. But you certainly don't uh, see uh, all the specifics. You don't see people and buildings till, till you come down lower. And so this point is, is that God is not so far away uh, that uh, he doesn't know what's going on. But then not only is he close that he can see what's going on, he interacts He participates, because look what it says right after that. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and not only lifts them up, but to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So first we're we're learning here uh, just about how great uh, God is, about how marvelous uh, a God is. And uh, this is famous. You read about, I won't take the time, but there's a couple of uh, places where you read uh, about uh, him raising the poor from the dust. Hannah says this, right? Hannah says this uh, in the great prayer of Hannah. 
uh, of Chana. You know, her name means grace. Never forget that, right? Uh, in uh, chapter 2 and uh, of 1 Samuel. And then in Psalm 107, uh, you see this also repeated, where Psalm 107 is talking about how great God is and how he redeemed uh, Israel and, you know, out of Egypt and, and so on. And then also, we know it mostly from the Haggadah, because we read it every year in the Haggadah, right? Why do we read? Why is this chosen to be in the Haggadah? Uh, because behind these great words is, according to the sages of Israel, the understanding that this is talking about how God has interacted with the Jewish people, how God has interacted with, with lowly Israel, that the God of the heavens, the God who created the heavens, the heavens and the earth, the God who restored the earth, the God who, who flooded the earth and restored the earth, found a man, you know, uh, who was from Ur of the Chaldeans, but was living in Haran, uh, up in the, the Syrian, uh, you know, territory up there. Uh, and he said, Lech Lecha, go, basically follow me. I'm not going to tell you right away where I'm taking you, but follow me. And this is Avraham, Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God called these nomads uh, to turn the world upside down, okay? Much like God called fishermen, you know, when Yeshua came, called fishermen to turn the world upside down. He didn't find, he didn't go to the seminary, he didn't go to say, who is the most famous rabbi, uh, or who is the most famous uh, expositor of the word of God, and, and I'll have that. No, it was just people who are like on the, uh, on the periphery. God exalted. In fact, don't we read in Deuteronomy, in, in, at Passover, in fact, it's the Haggadah is based on four or five verses, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 26. And how does it begin? My father was a wandering Aramean. My father was a wandering Aramean. My father was a nobody. Remember, I, I've talked on this. Uh, my father was a nobody, and he made us into somebodies, Right? Uh, that is the testimony uh, of, uh, of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Uh, and so here, God, who is absolutely grand, lowered himself to interact with his lowly people in order to turn the world upside down. Okay, How did he do that? How did God lower himself? Well, you know, one of the things he did is he obligated himself to human behavior you know what I mean by that? He entered into covenant relationship with sinners where he obligated himself to stick with them. He obligated himself to use them even though they're a stiff-necked people, right? That's what this week's Torah portion is about, hazinu, about all of that. We'll, we'll see that in our Torah study later on. So God humbled himself by obligating himself to fallen humanity. He didn't just separate himself from fallen humanity, but he obligated himself uh, to it, okay? Uh, uh, and uh, and so, so, so this is an important theme. Now, uh, uh, one, of course, doesn't it remind you of Yeshua, uh, the Messiah, right? 
So I'm going to suggest that what you see in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 is, yes, traditionally this history of, of God's history in Israel, but then we see it like through this uh, telescopic view, and it becomes, wow, I can see this is like Yeshua in everything that he's done, because he is the, he is the very incarnation of God, and he is the one who manifested himself into this, he is manifested into this world. And you talk about obligating oneself to this world. What do we read in the book of Hebrews? In Hebrews uh, chapter uh, uh, 2, in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse uh, 17, I think it is, yeah, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And there's other places as well. In, in Philippians, in the second chapter, clearly, Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And see, after it says he emptied himself, it's going to explain what emptied himself means here. Taking the form of a human being, a bond, a slave, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled. Oh, isn't that a coincidence? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the tree. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. But here we see this is how God has, has upfront and personal uh, uh, humbled himself. And so going back to uh, Psalm 113 now, we're reminded as Messiah followers, we cannot help but see Yeshua in this passage. But not just only Yeshua, but how God, how the coming of the Messiah is part and parcel of God's loving kindness and of God's humbling himself from the beginning. The coming of the Messiah is the crown of his humility. But God has humbled himself all the way through by sticking with us, by sticking with us. And raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy with the ash heap. He made us from nobodies into somebodies for his purpose. To make them sit with princes, even the princes of his people. Now, another, another layer of this, we could say, oh, well, this is talking about, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another layer of this is to jump forward in Jewish history before you get to the Messiah and look at David, King David. Remember, David was the runt of the litter. David was an afterthought. David, there was no way that David was supposed to be the king, you know? Uh, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, and makes them sit with princes, princes of his uh, people. And then it says he makes the barren woman abide in the house. May I suggest that this is no coincidence, there is no coincidence that Hannah includes a portion of this psalm uh, in her song. Uh, uh, and that uh, uh, that what is be, what is in the mind, perhaps, of the psalmist 
is like this whole long view of history. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have the remnant of Israel. Uh, You have King David. Uh, And may I suggest a King Messiah. And that the heroes of Israel have always been nobodies whom God makes into somebodies. And isn't it interesting, what did Yeshua say about the kihilat, about the, uh, the body of Messiah? It's, you know, it's as insignificant as a mustard seed on one hand, but it's going to change the world. And so very important for us uh, to get that, that God is the one who raises us up. God is the one who makes us effective. God is the one who seats us in strategic places. God is the one uh, who blesses us. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so in Psalm 113, we're called uh, to, uh, to remember that. And I'm just going to say very briefly, in Psalm 114, what we see here is, okay, God lifts us up. Now Psalm 114 is, wow, he, t- he took us out of Egypt. It's kind of like one th- the whole Psalm 113 is like this big introduction, you know? And now specifically, what did he do? Well, he took us out of Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt, and we became slaves of God. Wow. We were the, we were the uh, people who were uh, used and abused. And now God has taken us, and we belong to him, and he has restored our humanity and our purpose and our meaning. And wow, it's so huge that the sea turned itself back. And that the entire created world rejoiced and reacted uh, at this, you know? Uh, And uh, so when he says, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. And so we know he's talking about the parting of the seas. He's talking about when they complained and God gave them water. And to a certain degree, uh, all of the miracles that he did and sustained the people in the wilderness. And so we're supposed to remember it. So why we read this, we read these verses on these holidays. We got to remember what God did. Remember what God did. Remember what God did. Always remember what God has done. And that should cause us to rejoice. No matter what our personal dilemma may be, God is faithful. What will we see in our Torah study? What did Jessica read? God is a what? He is a rock. He doesn't change in the sense that he's always reliable. But he's, let me tell you what he's not though. And this sometimes our theology gets a little Okay, he's not a rock in that he is like, uh, he doesn't feel anything. He's not a rock in that he doesn't need anything. Like I was reading a commentary about Psalm 113 and the author, just one of these great reform teachers that, uh, not reform, uh, reform theology, you know, that, okay, he is immovable. Okay, he's immovable. Read the Bible. Okay? God weeps. God rejoices. He travels with his people. Uh, You know, yes, he's self-sufficient in the sense that we can't make, we can't add to to him. But, I'm going to say, he is, now, listen to the whole sentence. Okay? He is not self-sufficient in that he desires to live alone. 
No, it's not like God is in a cave and, and it's just like in this, you know, bubble or something, you know? No, he, he loves us and he created us to be with him. So in a way, he d- I won't use the word need because I don't want to get in trouble, but he really wants us to relate to him. That's why he redeemed us out of Egypt. And that's why we bless him. Because when we're connected with him, that's how we really demonstrate who he is when he's connected to humanity, you know? Uh, And so uh, may we, as we prepare for Sukkot, just really be praising God, thinking about just who he is and how much he loves us and how he has humbled himself for us to relate to us right where we are, simply because he does. Uh, and, uh, and there you go. Uh, you know, uh, let us uh, turn to the Lord right now. Let's pray. And uh, we're going to focus uh, on Sukkot, uh, on these Hallel Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 115 and 16 and 17 and 18. And uh, it's, you know, I'll, I will just, well, I'll save it for... Come tomorrow night, you'll hear more. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, uh, may we uh, really rejoice that you have manifested yourself in the history of our people, uh, Lord. And uh, God, I pray that uh, we would really get that. And we might meditate, uh, that we might meditate on these uh, psalms, Lord. And I pray, God, that... uh, when we, uh, when we talk about uh, the fact, Lord, that you uh, are grand and great and glorious uh, and, uh, and a creator, Lord, but you have made Judah your sanctuary, Lord, I pray that we might understand, Lord, that great calling and how you have manifested yourself in Israel. And that we might recognize that as Messiah followers, you have manifested yourself uh, in us, uh, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that these psalms would really have uh, new meaning for us, Lord, as we worship you this Sukkot. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.